0: Happy holidays, guys. I hope you enjoyed last week's uh, episode on toys and maybe learned something or heard something you'd never thought of before. If you're looking for a holiday gift or Happy New Year's Resolution gift, come check out my masterclass starting in January. We're going to do pre-recorded videos about anatomy, physiology, orgasm, desire, uh, couples, issues. And then we're going to do live coaching in a group, private Facebook group, and that's gonna be six weeks straight followed by a special treat of once a month for all year long. So check this out on my website, kellykaspersonmd.com and I cannot wait to see you there. Some people are already signing up, so this is gonna be fantastic. And enjoy this podcast today. This is a two-part series because there was just so much to, that we talked about and I don't like long podcasts. <laughs> like I have a short commute and so I try to keep the podcast I make short too. So this is uh, one of two and we're going to go into all things hormone, uh, infertility, PCOS, menopause. So listen this week and then come back next week for part two. All right, you guys, enjoy. Love you. Welcome to You Are Not Broken,
1: the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain
0: and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Hey ladies,
1: today I'm so excited to interview Dr. Rashmi Kadesia. She's a practicing infertility specialist at CCRM Fertility in Houston, Texas. She did medical school at Duke and then an OB-GYN residency at Cornell. She then did additional fellowship training in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, as well as a master's in clinical research at Albert Einstein, and now practices in Houston. Thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh my gosh, we're going to have so much knowledge from you because you did OB-GYN, so you have all the knowledge on all the babies and yeah. the women, and then additional training in infertility and research, so you know, you know how to analyze studies, which, is, yes, which was definitely. always mine. I'm like, oh, statistics. <laughs> I'm glad that wasn't a prerequisite for medical school.
0: <laughs>
2: totally. Well, I love to nerd out on the data, so That's I'm sure awesome. we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit.
1: So for people who don't know, what is a reproductive endocrinologist?
2: So yes, thank you so much for asking that question. So um, basically, it's a subspecialty of obstetrics and gynecology, um, which basically entails a three-year fellowship um, with training specifically in all of the hormones of reproduction, which kind of lends us to be able to be experts in contraception, infertility, um, and other hormonal issues like polycystic ovary syndrome or other kind of, you know, diagnoses where there's some sort of alteration in our reproductive functioning.
1: Awesome. Wow. That is that is a scientist who helps women. I love it. <laughs> yeah. A-, a, little, a little bit of a nerd, but it's great. <laughs> we need nerds. Need, nerds help us. This is so yeah. great. So in thinking about interviewing you and thinking about like the pressure of having sex to have a baby, right? So a couple is wanting to have a baby and now they have like a job on top of their job, which is to have sex to have a baby. Can you talk about how infertility affects a couple's sex life by like turning it into work?
2: You know, it's so, it's such a real thing. And I'm so excited that we're talking about that first and foremost, because I think a lot of couples come in with some shame around that, you know, people come in. And so here's, here's a truth bomb that people are often shocked by. I get so many couples that come in to ask me if they can move on to doing IUI, so intrauterine inseminations, just so that they can avoid having to have sex during their fertile window, because it has become that stressful. This is something that I see on a very frequent basis. And I think it really just speaks to the reality of the situation. You know, many, you know, people nowadays are very busy. And so the idea of, you know, monitoring your potential ovulation and then trying to time sex, you know, in that window, I have a lot of couples who, you know, one partner works days, the other one works nights. You know, some that pre-COVID were traveling a lot for work. So, you know, it's just it can be a lot to balance. And, you know, obviously many women, especially, but also men don't feel like doing it every day. And so this added responsibility of today, you have to have intercourse. And it's not just because you feel like it. It's as you said, it's the responsibility is a huge, you know, sort of has a huge negative impact on libido. And I think, you know, a lot of times couples are trying to actually salvage their sexual relationship by doing IUIs or even IVF um, so that they can get pregnant and get back to having sex just for intimacy rather than for procreation. So it's it's definitely an issue.
1: How do you counsel them? Is just kind of bringing it up helpful and kind of just relieve stress for them? Or are you like, do you, you say, yeah, let's do IUI. It's really not working for you guys. Like how do you counsel somebody through that those sex knots?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think for sure, I think the ability to just and and hear and get validated that it's a normal thing is really important. And I I feel that when I'm watching couples and having this conversation, a lot of times I see a little bit of a wave of relief that it's not a weird thing because sometimes people come in and they say, we have an unusual request, you know, and we want to do this. And and I, you know, I'm glad to tell them it's not unusual at all. Um, And so I think that that's one thing is just talking about it and normalizing it. And then, you know, I think also sometimes the option to have another alternative approach also helps people. So sometimes I'll say, look, what we can even do if it's really troublesome, because in in, I wouldn't even say extreme, but in many cases, it leads to erectile dysfunction on the male side. And so for many of the male patients, I'll say, look, we can even... Freeze the sperm ahead of time, you know, days or weeks or months ahead of time, and then use that for the IUI as a backup. And, you know, I've had a number of couples where just knowing that they had a backup allowed them to be able to achieve and maintain an erection no problem. And so I think it really goes to show that, you know, there is a huge mental and stress component to it. And so, yeah, so for some people, they are really relieved to just take that opportunity. And then for others, it's okay, knowing that that's normal, knowing that I have a backup plan. And all of a sudden, you know, problem is uh,
1: improved. That's brilliant. Oh, what good advice. Let's talk about, there are sexual side effects for so many things, right? Let's start, let's go through a little laundry list here. What are some sexual side effects of birth control?
2: So um, this is such an interesting concept. So, you know, the main, and I see so much misconception uh, about this out there. So, you know, most hormonal contraception is a combination of estrogen and progestin usually, or, you know, the the ring or patches, there's different formulations. But basically what that means is that the contraception is supplying the uh, hormones that your ovaries typically make, which are estrogen and progesterone. And so it's meant to basically allow the ovaries to relax. So basically when you get that estrogen and progesterone through a contraceptive, your body interprets that as, okay, we don't need to stimulate the ovaries because we're clearly already getting the ovarian hormones. And so the ovaries over time become quiet and kind of, you know, uh, totally reversibly, but become quiet and kind of dormant. So they don't have, you know, a lot of activity showing up if we did an ultrasound or something, your body's still being exposed to those hormones in a steady fashion. And so for some people, you know, that are dealing with uh, hormonal issues related to pain or related to the fluctuations in their hormones, birth control is great. However, many women, when they're ovulating on their own, find that they have like a real spike, excuse me, in their libido around their ovulation window. So that's kind of an evolutionary thing to help encourage us to have intercourse in our most fertile window. So by being on birth control, you kind of stabilize out, you know, the hormones and so you don't get that spike. And so for some women, whether it's because they're not having that ovulatory drive to uh, have sex or whether it's just the way the hormones sit with them in that particular formulation of birth control, there are some women that will find that their libido and their sex drive is less on birth control. So, you know, that that's a really interesting phenomenon. Um, yeah.
1: But I see a lot from birth control, just because I'm the pelvic urologist, is almost signs of menopause in the vulva. So lots of atrophy, less moisture. And we can we can kind of make up for that a little bit by supplementing it. But as long as there's birth control on board, it's kind of just a thing that happens to the body.
2: Yeah, no doubt. And so certainly, if somebody comes in with you know pain with intercourse, which as you can of course imagine, is not going to help anybody's sex drive to know if it's painful. You're totally right. You know, sometimes uh, long-term birth control use can definitely do that, and uh, it's totally reversible. So if somebody comes off of it for a different form of contraception, then you know that estrogen will perk right back up and help rejuvenate those those tissues locally. But you're right; sometimes we do see that.
1: What about infertility treatments?
2: Oh, so that's a good one. So, you know, there's so many different things that we kind of do from a fertility treatment perspective, but, you know, I think that, so, you know, when it comes to the first step, which sort of interferes with the hormones is basically what we call ovulation induction. So, you know, there can be two different classes of medications that we use in that context that actually do kind of different things to our hormones. But in a, in a general sense, what they both do, and these are clomiphene and letrozole, so they work in slightly different ways. But what they're both trying to do is is kind of artificially make the brain see a low estrogen level. And the brain then interprets that as, you know, okay, well, maybe the ovary isn't growing an egg, and it's time to grow an egg. So let's stimulate the ovary a little extra. And that's kind of how they drive, you know, a little extra stimulation to the ovary, which is what we're aiming for in, in the of fertility treatment, and so that being said, because they work in different ways, the side effects are a little bit different. Um, so you know they are really non-specific, but letrozole, for example, is a aromatase inhibitor, which basically means that it sort of makes our entire body see a low estrogen levels. So in more severe forms, you know sometimes people do report side effects like hot flashes, or even for women that get migraines, maybe in the, their premenstrual window when their estrogen levels drop, sometimes people get migraines that are set off from that. So I mean, in general, it's a fairly well-tolerated medication, but, you know, we definitely see some of those side effects from time to time. And, um, you know, the good news I will say is that because you only take these medications for five days out of every cycle, if somebody takes something and they don't have a great response, then, you know, uh, we can often say, all right, we won't do that again. The side effects will wear off pretty quickly, but, you know, that can be a source of trepidation for people that have a history of, you know, hormonally mediated migraines or, you know, other things like that. So yeah, the, the symptoms for ovulation induction can be really broad ranging. It can be, you know, things I mentioned, it can be headaches, fatigue, etc. It's, it's very broad. When it comes to more like IVF or in vitro fertilization, you know, there are so many different ways to sort of create that process. But the the long and short of it is that during an ovarian stimulation now we're trying to get the ovaries to grow multiple eggs at the same time and as they do that typically your estrogen level is going to go really high depends on how many eggs you have but that's kind of the typical experience and you know i think that process is very hard to to sort of sort out which parts are hormonal and which parts are also mental health derived because the process is is stressful you know you're coming into the doctor very frequently you obviously really want it to work. And so there's a lot of anxiety that goes along with that. But you know, when you get a very high estrogen level, you're basically going to feel, you know, kind of bloated, probably a little bit extra, you know, emotional um, or emotionally labile. You know, those would be normal things to experience. Um, you know, although I've had patients with very severe depression and anxiety do fine, it just really depends. And I think has a lot to do with advanced planning of knowing that, you know, it's going to be a tough two weeks and, and just kind of getting through it. So that's kind of, you know, that piece of it. And then on the flip side, as we get closer to actually transferring an embryo, early parts of pregnancy, we're really supplementing progesterone at that point. And progesterone has, you know, totally different side effects. So breast tenderness, nausea, fatigue, you know, just like overall sleepiness, you know, the things that we typically associate with early pregnancy, those are all progesterone effects heartburn, sometimes constipation, all of that. So, you know, those are the side effects that can come along with progesterone, on top of which that as of yet, we don't have a great way to deliver progesterone. So typically it's either intramuscular injections or vaginal suppositories that kind of break down and give this clunky discharge. And so that, that I think is the other side effect of progesterone. It's just, there's not a great way to get it. And so I think it becomes a tiresome medication for a lot of my patients. But, you know, because, again, we're doing that close to the embryo transfer, hopefully it's buffered by a positive pregnancy test and sort of that feeling that it's worth it um, in the end, you know, for for a couple months to, to get that result that they're aiming for.
1: I love it. I'm just thinking like, as you're talking, I'm like, this woman makes babies. What a cool job. <laughs> it's a really
2: cool job. But I mean, you have a cool job too, because it's amazing how much is not understood on, you know, the the other pelvic organs also. So right? you know, yeah. good. We, we transition them through my life phase onto your life. Phase. Yeah. They
1: come see me after the vaginal deliveries. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, I know. The disaster that has happened after. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So talk. let's talk a little bit about sexual side effects of menopause. Mm.
2: Yeah. So, okay. So at menopause, you know, it's kind of the opposite end of, of everything. So, you know, essentially at that point, the ovaries are almost depleted or getting close to being depleted of any um, eggs that are remaining. And so they essentially the production internally of, of again, of estrogen and progesterone are is dropping. And and so as a result, you know, and it's interesting because the timeline of that can really vary. So the average age of menopause in our country is 51, but when the you know pre or perimenopausal symptoms set in can really vary, oftentimes starts to show up, you know, as early as the early to mid forties but, you know, can often obviously be closer to that. But there's a pretty wide variation. Some studies have shown that some women will experience perimenopausal symptoms for a decade or more, which, you know, I think is really important to raise awareness about because I think most people assume that it's really time limited and it, and it's not for some people. So the first step in leading up to menopause is that your ovulation starts to become irregular. So the first step actually that, you know, that we see actually in my patient population, oftentimes it can kick in in your late thirties and early forties is that first the cycle gets a little bit shorter. So if you were one of those people that always had a 28 day cycle, the first step is that you might see like a you know, 25, 26 day cycle. And that's basically because your ovaries are starting to ovulate early. They're kind of accelerating the process of speeding through follicular growth or basically the sac that the egg grows inside of. And then as you get further into the forties, typically we'll see that the um, ovulations will space out and you get that period that might come every two months instead of every month or whatever. And then eventually it'll just stop. And so as we get kind of closer to the the point of actually stopping, A, when the cycles are irregular, you might get, you know, irregular bleeding. It could be heavy bleeds that happen. This is a lot of the time where if women had fibroids or other pelvic issues, you know, they may kind of become most problematic at that point in time. And then from a hormonal perspective, you know, the ups and downs of, you know, these hormones can create a lot of uh, different symptoms. So one is I think the frustration of being unable to predict what's going on with your cycle if you're not on any sort of hormonal medication. So I think that is a huge quality of life factor that I would never count. But then as we get closer to, you know, actually fully getting into menopause, the most obvious things that people talk about as a result of low estrogen levels, one you already mentioned which was vaginal atrophy. So, you know, basically our vaginal tissue is really reliant on estrogen to keep it, you know, able to kind of resist the friction of intercourse. And so when we get vaginal atrophy, um, intercourse can become really uncomfortable. We might even get spotting, even if you use like a tampon, just that insertion of anything in the vagina can create spotting really easily. It just becomes sensitive tissue. So that's one thing, you know, mental health wise, a lot of women will report feeling kind of foggy, feeling like their memory is declined, feeling, you know, there's higher rates of depression and anxiety during that transition. So, you know, that is definitely um, something that's well reported. And, uh, you know, and then hot flashes, uh, obviously being one of the things everybody talks about. And, you know, that, again, is just kind of the experience kind of out of the blue of feeling all of a sudden a very, you know, sudden and rapid onset of, of just warmth. kind of, you know, the, the typical thing is just feeling like, okay, all of a sudden I need to, like, you know, take off all my clothes and like try to get, you know, some ventilation, it just feels like a very sudden change in the body. And, you know, so those are kind of the starting side effects. And then, you know, once you get past menopause over time, those effects of prolonged uh, estrogen deficiency is where they end up in your office with maybe things like incontinence or other issues, because, you know, all of the pelvic structures are, are kind of having less support from less estrogen,
1: basically. Absolutely. I think it's a good, this is a nice transition to be like, why are women so afraid of estrogen in our society? Do you think?
2: I think there's two answers to that. And I've actually, it's funny, I'll spray the backstory, but I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, one is, I think that there's this whole sort of like sitcommy thing about estrogen, like, oh, women, you know, we're hormonal, we're, you know, moody. You know, it's kind of the whole, well, you know, do we want a female president because, you know, she's gonna be this way when she's on her period? You know, there's kind of this stigma or, you know, kind of it's the butt of a joke um, to have hormones as women. And so I think that in some ways subconsciously we strive to kind of emphasize that we are not hormonal, you know, but the reality is that we are and that our basic physiology requires us to be. I mean, estrogen is important for our sexual health, but it's also important for our bone health and our cardiac health as women. And so, you know, these are important hormones. So on the one hand, I think that there is a larger societal stigma that comes along with are owning, you know, the hormones that that make us who we are. You know, on the other hand, I think that, you know, years ago, I mean now it's more than a decade ago, you know, the Women's Health Initiative was a big study that looked at aimed to look at hormone replacement therapy for menopausal women and you know kind of had some erroneous conclusions based on the study design about, you know, potentially estrogen for hormone replacement being really unsafe. And so I think that there is kind of this deeply ingrained idea of, you know, is our hormones safe to take? And and, you know, that's something that, you know, has really been walked back. And now we we do use hormonal replacement therapy for the menopausal transition as appropriate. But I think, you know, for many women, you know, there were these shocking findings that kind of came out. And, you know, many people that were practicing OBGYNs at that time, you know, had a lot of vivid stories of menopausal patients that were begging for refills on their hormones and, you know, couldn't get them at that time. And it was very, you know, kind of just changed and rocked the world of gynecology. And then, you know, same thing with birth control. I think, you know, I see a lot of women that are nervous, you know, there's a, a very very persistent misconception out there that birth control negatively impacts your fertility. And, you know, I get that question, you know, very frequently. So, you know, I just think there's a lot of fear that goes around reproductive healthcare. And I think there's a lot of interesting politics around it in
1: our country as well. That's why I love, I love this podcast. and I love that you're coming on because it's like so many women learn things for, that aren't science based, or they, they might fear maybe they had a bad experience with the doctor And so for them to just be able to like safely in the comfort of their car, listen to people talk about hormones kind of, but not have to go see a doctor is just another way of getting good information out in the world. So thank you so much for sharing that.